The Biblical Foundations Bible Study, online at biblicalfoundationsbiblestudy.com. Taught by Chris Martin, this course has been created to demonstrate the importance of biblical literacy in the 21st century. Really glad you're here because we've got a great study on the resurrection of Christ this morning. I've titled it Pictures of Devoted Love because there's a lot of different ways to study the resurrection. Thankfully, we've got three weeks to study the resurrection. Next week, I'm going to look at Jesus' appearance to the disciples and the lessons we can learn there. And I'm going to give you a deep dive into one of the most least known disciples that you're really going to fall in love with, Thomas. Thomas, everybody knows by his nickname, Doubting Thomas. But there's tremendous life application we're going to take next week from Thomas, so join us next week. The following week, we're going to use the outline of John as a springboard into a deeper dive on all of the evidence of the resurrection. I'm going to put my lawyer hat on. I'm going to have you put your jury hat on. And I'm going to give you the closing argument for the case of historically... How do we know factually, documented, historically verifiable that Jesus Christ rose from the grave and the biblical account is accurate? I'm going to give you that lawyer's perspective in two weeks. So we're going to do four weeks in the resurrection. I think you'll like this morning because it's a focus on devoted love. The reason I did that is we're looking at three sets of people. We're going to look at Joseph Arimathea and Nicodemus with Jesus coming off the cross. We're going to look at Peter and John running to the tomb. And we're going to end on Mary Magdalene, each of them giving us a different perspective on devotion or the idea of devoted love. If I mention the idea or you see the screen, you're like, ah, it's an elementary concept. I understand devotion. As we get through it, I think there may be some challenging aspects to your perspective that you may not have thought about, but I want to get everybody on the same page. What am I talking about with devoted love or the idea of devotion? The dictionary definition up on the screen, if you're up close, you can see it. If you're far away, I know it's a little hard, but it says the dictionary definition, a deep commitment and loyalty in love, or a relationship, particularly marriage. It's also as a synonym, dedication. Our biblical application of this, the biblical cross-reference is Romans 12, 2, where Paul, writing to the church at Rome, says, be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. If I was looking for another cross-reference, I would give you, for devoted love, 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15 is the fill in the blank on love is this, love is not that. Every single application of 1 Corinthians 15 is devoted love. It's it's application of what does devoted love mean? It means Romans 12.10, cross-reference 1 Corinthians 15. So we're going to look at it as I apply those concepts into those three groups I mentioned. We're starting at the end of John chapter 19. We're going to carry over into John chapter 20. In John 19, as we left off last week, Jesus says it is finished and his ministry is finished. His miracles are finished in terms of earthly ministry. Uh, His suffering is finished. God's wrath is satisfied. It was a real critical issue on it is finished, and he uh, breathes his last breath. They pierce his side. That's the end of the crucifixion story. In verse 38, we pick up the story of devoted love as we see. It's critical who's not here. It's critical who is. It says in verse 38, after this, Joseph of Arimathea, who is a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because of his fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might remove Jesus' body. Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took his body away. 
I want you to understand before we do our deep dive on Joseph, this Joseph guy, is that this is different than normally what took place at crucifixion. Because the Roman idea was to eliminate for all time sedition or revolution against the government. They wanted to make this as long-lasting and horrific as possible. So outside of Israel, crucifixion took place for days, and the body would stay on the cross for days after that. There was no need to remove it. Why not leave it up as a billboard? If you commit sedition, this is what happened to you. So the body would be left up for days until bad things happened to it. Uh, because of the high Sabbath day and because of the Jewish rules on the Sabbath, anyone crucified in Israel had to come off the cross before Sabbath. They would not leave them up. So that's why they took Jesus down on the night of the crucifixion. Now, this guy, Joseph Arimathea, a little more insight from the Gospel of Mark. Mark tells us in chapter 15 of verse 43, there came Joseph of Arimathea, a counselor or lawyer of honorable estate, who also himself was looking for the kingdom of God. And he boldly went unto Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. We know very little about this guy because he's not mentioned before then. He's not mentioned after. Scripture tells us he's a member of the Sanhedrin. When it says counselor or lawyer, it's not referring to somebody that does what I do. It was a student of the law, someone that would educate the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the Sadducees on what the Bible said, what the Old Testament said. And so as a scholar, as a student of the law, he's looking for Messiah He's looking for the kingdom of God. He knows his Hebrew scriptures very well, and he is now convinced Jesus is the Messiah, but he had to be secret or he loses his job, probably loses his friends, and possibly loses his family. We know he's wealthy because he's got a tomb. He's dug out a tomb of limestone. I'll talk about that in a minute. He's got a partner in uh, this act, Nicodemus. We studied about him early in John. He comes to Jesus early at night or late at night, says, What must I do to be saved? It says in verse 39, Nicodemus, who had previously come to him at night, that's the earlier reference to John, also came with Joseph of Arimathea, bringing a mixture of about 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes. So Joseph is committing the tomb and the linen. Nicodemus is bringing the spices. Why the spices? The Jews buried. Within 24 hours of death, just like we saw with uh, 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 earlier death scenes in the Bible where people were buried quickly, the, the children that Jesus raised, his little boy, little girl, uh, when uh, we see other evidences of death, they, the funeral occurs very quickly, the spices were brought for the obvious issue of controlling the stench. There was an issue of kind of an entombment. There was an issue of not uh, doing what we do today to embalm somebody. And so we see with all the different aspects of uh, like Lazarus, after three days, people come into Jesus in the King James language, which I like, he stinketh, yeah. right? And so that was an issue for anyone who died, an issue for the body of Jesus, they thought. So they would mix 75 to 100 pounds of these things and basically put them in what our mind would say is like a, a, a mummy, like a little, uh, in, like a little, uh, almost like a coffin of wrapping. Now, the myrrh you would think of as like an oil or you'd think of as like a perfume. Used for burial, it was a gummy, sticky, almost like a, um, like a resin uh, that you would use to wrap around the linen coverings. Aloe, you think, is a lotion. In Jesus' time, an aloe would be like a really fine sawdust that you would mix with the gummy substance, and it would give you the ability to smooth it out, give it a slightly different scent, and it would also help with the scent of the myrrh to uh, help keep the body totally sealed in this process.
Now, I want to talk about the different types of devotion. We're looking at devotion for these two guys, devotion for Peter and John, devotion for Mary Magdalene. The first devotion, if you had a handout, it'd be Roman numeral number one, is a devotion that serves. There's a lot of different ways you can serve, a lot of different aspects of love we see in 1 Corinthians 15. The devotion that serves are these two guys that say, even in death, I'm going to serve. Even in death to the Lord I love, I'm still going to take care of him even though he's gone on. We see that in a couple of different ways. They're secret disciples no more. It says very clearly in John, it says clearly in Matthew, for both Nicodemus and for Joseph Arimathea, they were believers in him as Messiah, but they were secret. Both of them were afraid of their jobs. They're both in the Sanhedrin. They're basically in the equivalent of the United States Senate for us would be what these guys are in Israel. They're senators. Or other parallel would be a Supreme Court justice in the United States Supreme Court. Really high political position. As a follower of Jesus, they would be kicked out of that organization. So as soon as they say, we're going to take him off the cross, we'll take care of the body, everybody there immediately knew they're followers of Christ, so life changes. Number one, I don't want you to lose sight of the fact this is a bloody decision. But a lot of people lose sight of if you're going to take a crucified body off the cross that's gone through a scourging, that's been whipped to the point of death, it is an ugly scene. Most of the art and the pictures use what looks like towels to lower the body once the hands and the feet are removed. I've seen no evidence of that in the historical record. I think it's a way for artists to capture Jesus' face and body because the best art I've seen of what happens is when the Roman soldiers would use a large crowbar to remove the, the nails in his hands, the body slumps forward. If you're whipped to the point of almost bleeding to death, if your arms have been pierced with nails, your body is a bloody mess. So as Joseph Arimathea and Nicodemus would capture the body, it would fall on them and the blood of Jesus would totally cover them. Hair, face, arms, clothing, they would be completely saturated with the blood of Christ. Uh, the feet would be removed, they would take him down, they'd wrap him up and they would carry him in almost like a hammock of cloth. And the burial cloth would become what was the hammock of sorts to carry him to the nearby grave. It's also a costly commitment that I don't want anyone to lose sight of. The disciples are nowhere to be found. The women are too terrified or probably not strong enough to, care, to get the body off the cross and to carry him to the nearby tomb. The only people that are carrying Jesus are these former secret disciples that stand up and say, we're going to take care of this guy's body because we are disciples of his. Understand what that meant. Instantaneous excommunication from the Sanhedrin. Instantaneous bar to entering the temple to sacrifice and worship. To everybody else in their culture, they just condemned themselves to hell. And they said, we don't care. We want to take care of Jesus. To whatever their jobs were outside of the Sanhedrin, it meant instantaneous unemployment. And certainly for father-in-laws, mother-in-laws, uh, cousins, friends, it meant relational excommunication. We don't know if any wives left or kids left, but for them to have the stance for Jesus Christ meant in all of their culture, they were now ostracized. History doesn't say what happened to them, but you can imagine it was a very costly commitment. It was a devoted love of Jesus because they said, even though our Savior is no longer here, 
we're going to take care of his body. To take care of the body like that, before they had uh, uh, an, an embalmment process in the modern era, before they had undertakers, you would have to go through the process and the devoted love to say, we're going to take care of this battered and uh, murdered body was an incredible statement of devoted love. Now, look what it says in verse 40. Then they took Jesus' body and wrapped it with linen cloths. I highlighted the plural for a reason I'm going to get to in a minute. With the aromatic spices, that's the myrrh and aloe I taught you about earlier, according to the burial custom of the Jews. The reason I want to highlight this is a historical issue that's come up in recent centuries I want to touch on in a minute. But the custom of the Jews has been well documented. From Josephus to other Jewish historians, they described the process of how they buried them. They use cloth, not like an ace bandage, but almost like a really large wrap, uh, kind of depending on what was available. Sometimes a foot, sometimes two or three feet, and they would take these strips and wrap the legs separately, not together, like a mummy. They would wrap them separately. They would wrap the hips and the torso. They would wrap the arms crossed over the body, either up or down, usually up. But they would be wrapping up to the top of the shoulders and then in a separate cloth, they would do the face covering almost like a napkin, like a four-sided piece of large linen laid over the face and tied behind it in a knot. And then the head would be slightly elevated by the knot behind the head. But there were two separate cloths there. And then usually, based on the size, two to 12 cloths for the neck down to the feet. So that's significant because a lot of times you see this and they picture it with you know, one huge piece of cloth or something that's going to hold the entire body. And that's not the burial practice of the Jews at the time. There's some pretty good art on this, uh, but the body of Jesus looks way too good. It would have been completely disfigured. The reason I mention this is any time I teach this, if I don't cover this point, somebody comes up at the end of class and they say to me one question. What about the Shroud of Turin? I first read about this in like younger elementary school. My grandparents got a copy of National Geographic and I'm at their house one summer reading this going, this is pretty interesting. Went to my dad. Dad, what do you think about this? I've studied it for years. I've not been to Turin, so I haven't seen it in person, but I've studied it for a long time. I want to tackle it with my personal opinion, just kind of give you guys some thoughts. The idea is the picture that's up on the screen, it's what it would look like if you went to the cathedral in Turin and looked at it. It's basically white with a dark pigment to it that they will tell you is blood. The negative image of that, the image comes a little more clear, and it is a picture of a man, clearly, uh, that appears to have blood wounds, appears to have some on the head, appears to have some on the body, appears to have some markings on the lower or upper, excuse me, lower hand, upper wrist. I think the reason people are fascinated by this is an overwhelming desire to know what the face of Jesus looked like. As we came back over New Year's, I did a study and I played for you the videotape of the painting of Jesus. It passed out the Jesus card for those of you here. People love to know what the face of Jesus might have looked like. One of the reasons I showed you all the video for those of you who are here. If you missed it, go back and watch the video. But the people's idea has been, if this is the face of Jesus, this is awesome. We're dying to know what he looks like. There's a couple of problems with the Shroud of Turin. I just want to cover a couple of them. Number one, Bible says strips, plural of linen cloth. The Shroud of Turin is one piece. Number two, John clearly teaches us. I showed you a minute ago, the head covering was separate. In the Shroud of Turin, it's one that allegedly wrapped over the top and the bottom, and it's one long piece showing a front image and a back image. The other fascinating issue is if you wrapped up Jesus for burial, it would also cover the sides. 
The Shroud of Turin does not cover the sides. There's no evidence of the sides. There's no evidence of a pierce mark in the side. It's just the top and just the bottom. Makes you wonder what happened to the side if this was burial clothes. Clearly multiple linen cloths, plural, the Shroud of Turin's one. There's no evidence on the shroud of one micrometer of myrrh or aloe or any spice. It's pure linen. It's got some pigment stuff on it, but it has no signs of spices, much less 75 pounds of spices. The Shroud of Turin first shows up in the historical record in 1357. For 13 centuries, no church father mentions it. The Catholic Church doesn't mention it. Church writers don't mention it. Common people that would say things about it never mention it. There's no mention of the Shroud of Turin prior to 1357. In 1390, a bishop in France that came into contact with the Shroud sent it to the Pope and said, it's a forgery. I have interviewed the forger and he's confessed to his forgery. So a bishop telling the Pope it's forgery, and I did a personal investigation at your request, and I found it's forgery. Radioactive dating in 1988, using carbon-14 dating, put it within about 100 years and said the radioactive materials in the linen date 1290 to 1390, and if you study medieval forgeries, they forged everything. There's forgeries on stuff that would just make you laugh. Why would somebody go to the trouble to forge that? Uh, but they did. And so there are literally tens of thousands of things that were later proven to be forgeries. Uh, and if you said to me, Chris is a lawyer and your investigation is a shroud of Turin, the burial, of, the, the burial cloth of Christ, I would say, I don't think so. I don't think the evidence is for it. Uh, and it's no one issue. It's just all wrapped together with scripture. I don't think it works. Personal opinion. If you've studied and have an opinion about it, I'd love to have lunch with you or breakfast and talk about it. That's just my personal view. Back to John chapter 19, verse 41. There was a garden in the place where he was crucified. A new tomb was in the garden. No one had yet been placed in it. They placed Jesus there because the Jewish preparation for Sabbath and Passover and since the tomb was nearby. Now, if you've been to Easter services and you know all about it, it's pretty obvious. It's limestone. If you go to Israel today, Jerusalem in particular, you can go out to certain parts of the city and see evidence of the tombs. There's tombs all over the place. They look different ways. They would take a large stone and roll it in place so that they could enter it and exit it. They would typically bury multiple people in there. You bury one by closing the door, so you control the stench a little bit. You want to bury somebody else, you hold your nose, move the stone, go back in, bury somebody else, move the body out, put a new body in, do all kinds of things. But the door was created with a stone in order to move people in and out and bury lots of people inside a tomb. The thing with we know from Scripture is this stone was different. The Roman soldiers and Pilate in particular wanted to make sure no one moved the stone. We know from Matthew, they went and made the grave secure, which in Greek means uh, be the same word for airtight, where nothing's getting in and nothing's getting out. And along with the guard, they set a seal on the stone. I have heard a hundred preachers preach this wrong because they describe it as a piece of cloth they would put around the crack between the stone and the limestone wall. And they would, they would describe it as almost taking a piece of cord that's all gummy and sticky, and you stick it kind of in the crack to kind of get an airtight seal, and that seal means no one could come in. That's wrong. I look for art for this, and I've never found art that works. The seal was like an X on the front. 
It was a cord. It was gummy, but it's not wrapped around the top of the stone or the back of the stone between the crack. It's a big X on it. So you would take it and stick it in the top right and run it down to the bottom left, stick it in the top left, run it down to the bottom right, and it put a big red X on the front of this stone. Right in the middle of where the, the, the ropes crossed would be a piece of uh, clay. And in the center of this clay would be the signet ring of Caesar. It'd be put there because that emblem would be carried by Pilate and by the centurion of the Roman guard. And that seal means if you break this seal, you get the same fortune as the person behind the seal. It carried a capital punishment penalty of death if you go through this seal. It's just a piece of cloth. You could remove it with one hand, with really one finger. But the power that kept that tomb sealed was the power of Caesar in Rome with the penalty of death. The soldiers guarding it is not two guys looking like they're wearing miniskirts at a you know passion play. They were trained killers in the Roman army. And the cohort would have been a cohort of 16 men that had alternating shifts of four to six hours to make sure no one fell asleep. If someone fell asleep, the penalty was as you slept, they lit your clothes on fire. That would wake you up and keep you awake for the rest of your life. If someone was allowed under Roman watch to break into something that was sealed, whether it's a house, whether it's the treasury, whether it's a tomb like this, which would have been pretty abnormal. But if a Roman guard allowed someone to break in, they got the same penalty as those breaking in. The soldiers were under penalty of death. So these guys are financially and life motivated to keep anybody out. And if anybody's on the inside, to keep them on the inside, even though they're dead. So it's clear evidence of the seal and the fact that Jesus went in and no one went in to get him. Now, we transition to the Easter story. So chapter 19 finishes the crucifixion. That's our first picture of devotion. Chapter 20, we get our next two pictures of devotion. This is pretty significant because in verse 1, it says on the first day of the week. So now it's Sunday morning. It's Easter Sunday morning. Mary Magdalene or Mary of Magdala, which is a city up by the Sea of Galilee, came to the tomb early while it was still dark. She saw the stone had been removed from the tomb. Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us the guards are nowhere to be found. These guys under penalty of death have now fled the job. Seals broken, tombs open. We got a bunch of questions here and, and, and we're going to look at them for the next couple of weeks. Matthew gives us a great parallel because I want to give you a description of who came to the tomb. Mary Magdalene comes first. She freaks out and she runs back to tell John and Peter. Other women, including the mother of John, our writer, and his big brother James, along with another of other women, came to see the tomb as well. They were a little bit behind Mary once it was just a tiny bit brighter. They see something different. Mary then talks to Peter and John. They race the tomb. We're going to see that in a minute. And they have an experience. Then they leave and Mary comes back. So our difference between John and Matthew is John picks us up with the first person to see the open tomb. Matthew jumps over and goes to the first group to see the tomb, and that's the women. They see something different. Matthew 28, 5 and 5 through 7. There's an angel there. They say, what's going on? Verse 7, verse 5, sorry. An angel answers them and said to the women, 
plural means Mary Magdalene's run. It's Mary, the mother of James and John and others that were there. Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where the Lord lay, and go quickly and tell his disciples that he had risen from the dead. They came to anoint the body. And so the first question I get here, and people want to talk about the resurrection, is they say, well, if it's sealed, how are they going to go in and anoint the body? One of two things. You could anoint the body by anointing the stone, because if you put uh, perfume-type things all over it, you're going to help with any stench that may be coming out of it. With the authority of the Roman centurion that would have been coming by that morning to oversee the transition of the troops, the centurion could open it, let them in, anoint the body, seal it back up under armed guard. Never happened, but it could have happened. The point is they came to bring uh, spices to do more around the tomb or theoretically to the body. Back to John. Mary Magdalene ran to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, the one Jesus loved. We know from prior lessons, that's John. He says so at the very, very end. I'm the writer. I'm the one John, the, the one Jesus loved. Mary Magdalene says to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. One of the things I don't want you to miss, Mary is full of wrong ideas. Everything Mary says until the end of the story is flat wrong. She doesn't understand what's going on. She doesn't know what's going to happen. She's been with Jesus for three years, and she's got no clue, but yet she's still going to be honored greater than any other person in the history of humanity, and I'll tell you why in a minute. So before we get to the rest of her story, which picks up a couple of verses later, there's an interlude because Mary Magdalene talks to Peter and John, our writer, and so I want to talk about them. We talked about with Joseph Arimathea, and we talked about with Nicodemus. It's a picture of devotion. They're serving his dead body. Here, we've got devotion that seeks to understand, just like all the applications of 1 Corinthians 15. Here, we've got a devotion that seeks to understand. Devotion that wants to deepen always seeks to know more. It always seeks to learn more, to understand more of the person, to learn more of the circumstances. So with Peter and, uh, and John, we learn differently. This is a fascinating piece of art uh, from that particular event, the one thing it captures right is Peter's the old guy, John's the young guy. John, we know from history, is about 18, maybe 19 years old. Peter's the old guy, he's about 40. John is a better sprinter. Peter's a distance man, he's a little bit slower, he's running a lot slower. This picture is interesting because it shows Peter out front. Unless this is a painting of the first 10 feet, John's out running Peter the whole way back to the tomb. Peter's the older guy, he's running a little bit slower. This painter wanted to give Peter a little bit of preeminence. He would have been watching John from behind since the minute they walked out the front door. John tells us that, which I think is hilarious. Verse 3, at that, being told by Mary Magdalene, Peter and the other disciple went out, headed for the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and got to the tomb first. That's a little editorial license where John says, I beat the old man. I got there first. When I get to heaven, it's going to be a great question. How did the Holy Spirit allow you to do that? Because John's whole gospel is humility, humility, humility. Except right here, and he goes, I got there first. Ha ha. Great story. I understand why he wants to emphasize it. Nowhere else in scripture they emphasize it. It's funny. The writer says, I outran the old man. Verse 5. 
Stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. Verse 6, then following him, Simon Peter came also. He entered the tomb and saw the linen cloths lying there. The reason I highlight the verb saw is because they're totally different words. And I call this devotion that seeks to understand because the use of the verb saw describes what's going on. The first Greek word used in verse 5 for John is to simply look at. Same word you'd use to look at a book, to look at somebody. It basically means glance, and I move on. So John looks and sees the linen cloth, notice the plural, yet he did not go in. So John is really confused. This is a picture of John not saying, ah, now all of our teaching of Jesus makes sense. John's clueless. He's so scared he won't even go in. The old guy shows up huffing and puffing. He's behind him. We don't know how far, but he's behind him. And Simon Peter comes in and he saw the linen cloth. Totally different Greek word. The Greek word here has the root in Greek of theorize. Theriozo. And it means to look at something to the point you can analyze it and come up with an idea of what's going on. The picture is this mummy. Legs wrapped individually, core from the hips to the shoulders wrapped, unified, head cloth separate. Peter looks in, walks in. John looks in, they see the same thing. The cloths are not unwrapped. It's like a mummy that just collapses because the body's been removed. And the head cloth separate, we don't know how separate, but it's separate, has been folded up. Fascinating picture. So they look at it. There's no evidence that the, that the clothes, that, that the burial cloths were unwrapped or pulled off. There's no evidence they were thrown on the floor in the corner. Peter looks at it and he goes, the body vanished out of the cloth. As you look at it, it's still the exact same way it was when the women and Joseph and Nicodemus left the night of the crucifixion. It looks like the body ought to be there. The bed, uh, grave clothes are exactly where they were when they left the tomb days earlier. They look at it and they go, wow, what's going on? John's mind is racing. Peter looks at it and he theorizes what happens. Verse 7, the wrapping that had been on his head was not lined with the linen cloth, but was folded up in a separate place by itself. This is fascinating to me because the rest of the cloths collapse where they are. It's just like what would happen if the rapture occurred today. If the rapture occurred as I'm teaching and anybody was left behind, I hope that wouldn't happen, but if anybody's left behind, my shoes would be right here. My pants would be right on top of them. My blue shirt would be right on top of that. My jacket with the microphone thing inside of it would be right on top of that. And the fillings in my mouth would be right on top of that. If any of you have had plastic surgery, there may be more stuff on top of that. <laughs> Everything earthly stays behind. The resurrection body goes out. So it is fascinating to me, the face cloth is folded and put away. Why would you fold a face cloth and leave it somewhere else? The face cloth in Jewish literature from the first century is described by one simple word, the napkin. It was a large piece of linen cloth, enough to wrap around the head. I told you, they tie it in the knot. The head sits up on a knot. It's slightly elevated looking forward. 
if you've got the napkin and as a part of the resurrection, it is folded and laid to the side, what does that mean? When do you fold up a napkin? At the end of the meal. The meal's over. The banquet is over. It's time for the greatness that follows the meal. Live in life. So the folding of the napkin, I believe, was Jesus saying, the banquet of my earthly life is over. Now it's time to start living. The meal that he went through and the most painful of things you could imagine through the crucifixion is done. He says, I'm going to wrap this up. So you know it's not just a disappearance of the body. It was something intentional to say this is transitional. Nothing that came before is going to be the same. Nothing that comes after is going to be anywhere close to the same. Great little story. Uh, Very few people talk about that. Fascinated me since I was a kid. Verse 8. The other disciple, that's John, who had reached the tomb first. He reminds us again, I outbeat the old guy. Then entered the tomb. He saw and believed. For they still did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went home again. I highlighted saw and believed here because the use of the word saw here is a third Greek word. First one, John glanced at. Second one, Peter theorizes. He looks at and he starts thinking, what the heck's going on here? Third word for saw and believed is you see something in a way that you're willing to put trust in it. In other words, I see the chair and I'm willing to sit down. I see the door and I'm willing to walk through it. I see the fruit and I'm willing to pick it up and eat it. It is the use of the word saw when it follows an action. I see and I do something. So use this Greek word when it's based on an action that follows or a thought that follows. And so Peter theorizes and it says John saw and did more than theorize. John believes he has been resurrected. The body's not here. No one stole him. No one took him. But verse 9 is the Holy Scripture saying, don't think this guy was a great theologian. They, both Peter and John, did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. They realized, look, and he's risen from the dead. They've yet to figure out the why. They've yet to figure out why he's gone, what the purpose is, is he coming back. They can't reconcile any of scripture. So anyone that would say that they took the body of Jesus and the gospel is simply the invention of Peter and Paul and John and Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Scripture tells us these guys were clueless. They couldn't come up with a concept of Christianity if you gave them years to think about it and a whole lot of money to pay for it. They were clueless. And Scripture makes clear until the Holy Spirit inspires them, they have no clue what it all means as it relates to the Old Testament. Now, let me give you some insight on what's going on here. First insight is God has provided overwhelming evidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. The sealed tomb, the gravestone, the change lives because Peter and John are now never going to be the same. The, the disciples are no longer going to be cowards. They're going to be life's transformed. When I do our little jury closing argument in two weeks and I play the role of lawyer, you play the role of jury, and I give you 45 pieces of evidence, the truth of resurrection, it is overwhelming. It's overwhelming for believers and the security of our salvation, our faith. For non-believers, it ought to be overwhelming to the point of driving them to salvation. In two weeks, I'm going to give you the whole story. Here, I just wanted to give you the touch point. The reason John describes what he describes is evidence Jesus is who he says he was, the Son of God and the Messiah. Second insight. 
The transformation of the body of Jesus Christ points to a new mode of life for all who believe in him. I'm referring here to life here and life afterwards, the resurrection body. The life here means no matter how sick you are today, if you've been sick with COVID, if somebody's watching on TV with COVID, TV, if somebody's watching uh, on their computer with the flu or something else that's going on, it's really significant no matter how sick we are with earthly diseases, there is a life coming that does not involve sickness. The joy of Dr. Fong's funeral is he's no longer suffering. He's no longer trapped by that body that no longer had muscle movement. And that's the joy for all of us, no matter whether it's cancer, whether it's some other kind of dread disease, whether it's an accident. The resurrection of Jesus Christ gives us all confidence and joy in the passing of the earthly body. But for the resurrection body, it's something Scripture doesn't tell us a lot about. We know from Jesus what he can do, move through grave clothes, we're going to see next week he moves through locked doors and three feet thick walls. And you start looking at us and say, well, are we going to have the same resurrection body? As far as we know, our resurrection body is going to be just like Jesus. And that is not constrained by temporal elements. And I talk to people and they're like, you mean I can walk through locked doors if there are any locked doors? You know, can I walk through walls? Yeah, if you want to walk through walls. I think the biblical account is very clear that our resurrection body is going to be just like Jesus which is why the earth that remains during the uh, great uh, millennial reign is going to be different. Heaven's going to be different. We'll talk about that in a couple of weeks when Jesus ascends into heaven. So that's our devotion. We've seen the devotion of Joseph and Nicodemus one way. We've seen a separate devotion of Peter and, and John. I want to end with Mary Magdalene. And Mary Magdalene is a fascinating person. In our last 20 or so minutes, we're going to get an insight into this woman. Scripture tells us a little bit about her, and what we know from Scripture is incredibly devoted. The only thing we know with certainty is she had demons in her, multiple demons, and Jesus cast them out. After the gospel or after the New Testament was written, church tradition gave her attributes that we don't know historically of true. The early church fathers said that she was the prostitute that came to Jesus and washed his, washed his feet with her hair. In scripture, she's just a woman a prostitute who washes Jesus' hair or feet with her hair, dries his feet with her hair after they washed him. Scripture doesn't tell us that. The only thing we know about her from Scripture, Luke gives the best description, and she's one of several. Luke 8 tells us to start the chapter. Soon afterwards, Jesus began a tour of the nearby towns and villages, preaching and announcing good news about the kingdom of God. He took his 12 disciples with him, along with some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Among them were Mary Magdalene, or Mary of Magdala, from whom he had cast out seven demons, Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's business manager, Susanna, and many others who were contributing of their own resources to support Jesus and his disciples. This is fascinating. We don't know what jobs these women had, but they gave their money to support Jesus and the disciples who were not working but were doing ministry to spread the good news of Jesus. That's fascinating to me. That tells me that while Jesus and the disciples get a lot of press for a significant amount of time and possibly all of the time of Jesus' earthly ministry, there was a group of women following with them, going away to work, bringing back some money, going away to work, bringing back some money. A picture of unbelievable devotion, not to worry about their homes, their food, they said, there's a way I can work and give, and I'm going to do it. And to me, it's just amazing. This woman's devotion carries on. 
and I describe it as the third type of devotion, a devotion that desires to be close. So the first example is a devotion that's serving even in death. The second one is a devotion that looks to be understood. The third one is a devotion that desires to be close. Why do I say that? In verse 11, we get the story of Mary. Mary stood outside facing the tombs. Let me put it in the chronology. She shows up, empty tomb. She freaks out. She runs back to get John and Peter. Other women show up a little bit later. They see the angel. The angel says, go sell the disciples. They go to find all the rest of them. Having got the news from Mary Magdalene, Peter and John come along. They then go back to tell the other disciples. Mary then comes back. And when she comes back, the rest of the story takes place. She's clueless what's going on. She apparently took a different route. She doesn't encounter the women coming back. She doesn't encounter Peter and John. She's crying because as far as she knows, Jesus has been stolen. Middle of verse 12, as she's crying, she stooped to look inside or into the tomb. Last time she sees it open, she runs. This time she's going to say, I'm going to look into it. The reason why she didn't look into it earlier, she didn't have a flashlight. And it says in John 1 or John 19, it's dark. Sun hadn't come up yet. She comes back, the sun's up, it's lighting up the inside. Now she can see for the first time what's on the inside. Verse 12, she saw the two angels, or she saw two angels in white sitting there, one at the head and one at the feet where Jesus' body had been lying. Couple of questions about the angels. If I don't tell you about the issues, you're probably gonna ask me afterwards and I wanna take it for the whole class. The significance of the angels is more evidence of what's going on. And that is, it is an announcement from on heaven of what's going on so no one is confused. Think about scripture. John the Baptist is conceived. An angel comes and tells his parents, an angel's been conceived, you're the forerunner of the Messiah. Holy Spirit conceives in Mary. Angel shows up to Mary and tells her what's going on. Other angel shows up to Joseph, tells him what's going on. Jesus at the temptation, angels show up to minister. Baptism, I, I skipped that, baptism of Jesus. Holy Spirit speaks from heaven in a voice. Uh, we know from the other attributes of scripture, when angels show up, they show up to communicate the validity of what's going on and a voice from heaven so there's no confusion about what's going on. So the angels are there not to guard, but angels are simply there to let her know what's going on. What did they look like? What did they sound like? I'll give you some speculation, but we get into verse 13 for some more answers. They said to her, woman, why are you crying? Now, I got to stop immediately because people hear that in 21st century Texan, and they say, those angels were rude. Because in our minds, you wouldn't say woman unless you're looking for a fight, right? We don't use that language. The cultural translation would be ma'am. It's a term of respect. In France today, the translation would be madame. It's, it's, it's ma'am, it's madam. It's a word of, of significance, not woman the way our culture would translate that. So it says, madam, ma'am, why are you crying? Showing once again, she's still clueless, her second error. Because they've taken away my Lord, she told them, and I don't know where they put him. So in her mind, he's still body's been stolen. She has no idea what's going on. She's freaking out. All right, question. Why do you have an account where she shows up and there's no angels? The second group of women show up and they're scared to death because they see angels and they recognize them as angels. 
first thing the angels say is, don't be afraid. And they tell them what's going on and go back to the disciples. Peter and John show up, no angel. Mary Magdalene shows up and there's two angels sitting down inside the tomb. What in the world is going on? How can two women see one thing and Mary see something different? Well, first of all, there's a difference in time. Mary's not with the other group of women that show up. Mary shows up by herself. The second thing is the idea of ministering spirits. We're going to talk about this in a couple of months when I start teaching you guys a study series on angels. Angels do different things. One of the things angels do is minister to us when we're hurting. The first group of women that shows up are in a different place. They didn't follow Jesus for his whole ministry. They weren't by Jesus' side with the disciples and all the different things. They were not at the foot of the cross as Mary Magdalene was, as we know from Scripture. She's in a different place of pain and hurting. The first angels show up as angels and say, don't be scared. Don't freak out. We got a message. Go tell the disciples the Lord is risen, just like Scripture says, and go tell the world. So the other women have got a different experience because they've got a different need. So the takeaway here is angels minister to us, not in mass, but angels minister to us as we need. I'm going to do probably three lessons on this, probably in April or May when I start teaching you about angels. But for here, it's an illustration of why Mary Magdalene is in a place differently than the other women. Angel question number two, Peter and John. How can you have an angel there when the ladies show up? John outruns the old guy. Old guy comes jogging in later after his long, you know, marathon run. He shows up outside the city wall. They don't see an angel. Mary Magdalene comes back and the angel's right there. What's going on? Once again, Peter and John are in a different place emotionally. Peter and John are in a place where God the Father knows Jesus is going to come talk to them multiple times over the next 30 days. For Mary Magdalene, that's not quite the case. For her, she needs ministering spirits and angels. And so my personal belief is the angels were there. The angels never left. The angel was there when she shows up. The angel's there when the women shows up. The angel's there when the boys show up. The angel's there when she comes back. But angels have the ability to make themselves visible and not make themselves visible. And they do it based on who they're ministering to. So at that point in time, no need to minister to the boys. She's there. They're there for her, and we're going to see how that plays out. So it was the will of God the Father that these angels are ministering. Now, notice one huge difference between John's account of Mary Magdalene and Matthew's account of the other women. First words from the angels to the women in Matthew, don't be scared. We're not bad. We're good. We're angels. We're not demons. To Mary, there's no hint of that. Why? I think because they look like two men. I don't think they look like our picture of art with, you know, these big wings behind them and the wings are flapping and their bodies are all this kind of bright white and silver. I don't think that was it at all. She'd probably run or pass out right there and lose consciousness. I think it looked to her like two guys sitting on a bench talking to her because scripture makes very clear they can take on whatever appearance God wants them to take on, including the appearance of man. We do our deep study on this. We're going to talk about uh, situations in life with people you may have encountered that may in fact have been angels. We'll get to that in a couple of months for here. That's my belief. I love this picture because they're not sitting there with big wings and glowing. They look like two guys in really bright, shiny white clothes. And I think that's probably what these guys look like because to her, they don't say, don't be afraid. We're not bad. We're good. We got a good message for you. They just start talking to her. Look at verse 14. Having said this, her statement of error, they stolen my Lord. 
she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, although she did not know it was Jesus. Verse 15, woman, Jesus said to her, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Supposing he was the gardener, she replied, sir, if you've removed him, tell me where you've put him and I will take him away. Let me unpack that. First issue is she did not know it was Jesus. If you pause for a second and let your brain analyze this, it gets real weird real quick. Because you say, wait a minute. You just taught me she was with him as much as the disciples. She heard almost every sermon. She ate almost every meal because she paid for almost every meal. She was with him at the cross. She saw his crucified body in all of its gory details. She knew his voice better than just about anybody on the planet except maybe 15 people. The disciples, his mama, his brothers and sisters, and her. And she doesn't recognize him when she sees him. This is one of the most important lessons in life because there's one thing going on. She is in overwhelming grief and she is in indescribable trauma. And her brain doesn't work right. Her eyes don't work right. She sees fine, but how the brain interprets it's totally different. Her ears work fine, how the brain interprets it's totally different. She went through the fact that the guy that she thought was going to live out the earthly rule talked about by Isaiah and Jeremiah and all the Old Testament prophets die on the cross, and it was the worst event of her life. It was a family funeral magnified times 100. It's trauma and grief that we can't wrap our brains around. And one of the life lessons that we now know from 20th and 21st century psychology is clear as day. Extreme grief and trauma can severely impede one's ability to correctly perceive other people, events, or circumstances. It's the reason why they tell you after the death of a loved one, don't change anything until enough time goes on that your brain can reorient. It's why they tell you after extreme trauma, whether it's a life event or the loss of a loved one, be really careful how you interact with people, how you judge them, how you think what, what you think's going on, because studies have shown after extreme grief and immediate trauma, the brain functions differently. Different aspects of the brain are involved. The amygdala is involved more in the frontal cortex. It involves all kinds of things that mean if you're in a state of grief, you, if you're not grieving, be really, really tender and careful for them. And if you find yourself in a place of grief or trauma, be careful about turning your world upside down because your brain is not working right. So it's guidance for those of us who are not in deep grief or trauma. If you are in deep grief or trauma, be really careful because the way you look at the world, studies have shown and Mary illustrates can be really, really different. It takes time for those to calm down, for the brain to return to normal. Then you can start making some good decisions. He says to her the same thing the angels did. Woman, we look at it and go, wow, he was just as insulting as the angels. No, no, no. He was just as respectful as the angel. Ma'am, madam, whatever you want to call, he's respectful. But it says... If you'll tell me where you've put him, I will take him away. People read this and just fly through it and keep on going. I highlight it because it's the single greatest statement of devotion that I believe exists about Jesus Christ in the entire Bible. Why do I say that? Look at what she says. Tell me where you've put him. She thinks he's the gardener that has carried him to a different place. And I will take him away. She's a woman. We don't know how big she is, but assume she's average woman in the first century in Israel. 
medium size height, maybe somewhere between 120 and 130. We don't know how big Jesus was, but assume average size height, average size weight, he probably weighed between 160 and 175. With 75 pounds of spices on his body, remember, she still thinks he's dead. Insight. Mary's offer to go get and carry back a 245-pound corpse by herself is one of the greatest, if not the greatest, acts of devotion in all of Scripture. For this woman to say, I love him so much, I will carry 245 pounds by my little old self, is, in my opinion, the greatest act of devotion related to Jesus you see of any person anywhere in Scripture. It's amazing because she says, I don't know what's going on, but I want to bring him back here because this is the tomb given to him. Fascinating. Verse 16, Jesus speaks and says, Mary. He calls her by name. Scripture doesn't say what's going on in her brain, but it's clear instantaneously as soon as he says her name, clarity hits. He was still Jesus. She just couldn't see who he was. His voice hadn't changed. His resurrection voice is just like his earthly voice. She just can't, her brain can't process it because she thinks her friend and her savior is gone. He says her name, turning around, it says in verse 16, she said to him in Hebrew, Rabunai, which is rabbi, teacher, with the suffix at the end, meaning my, my teacher. She recognizes him for who he is, the guy she's been following and being devoted to for the last three years of her life. Tremendous life lesson about what's difference. What happened? Did Jesus give her insight? No. Something happened to instantly clear up her mind, and it was the use of her name. Jesus knew her name, and to bring her back to clarity, he simply says her name. Her mind instantly clears. She instantly knows who he is. Great life lesson for us. The fact that Jesus Christ knows each of us by name, calls us by name, and loves us by name should be the single greatest foundation for our devotion to him, given who he is and what he's done for us. What if you walked into Buckingham Palace and the queen stuck out her hand and said hi and called you by your first name? You'd say, wow, what have I done? What if you get an invitation to the Vatican and you walk in and there's the Pope and all of his cardinals and he holds out his hand and he says, welcome to the Vatican, and he calls you by name. You'd say, wow, the Pope knows who I am, and I'm not even Catholic. <laughs> Walk into the White House. President, Chief of Staff, know exactly who you are by your first name. You would feel more important than you've ever felt in your life because people that you esteem know you by name. Why don't we act like that when the creator of the universe knows us by name, calls us by name, and loves us by name? It ought to redefine everything we do and the way we think about everything in life. It was life transformative for Mary because it brought clarity. Like for us, if our Savior and Creator knows us by name, it's more than just Him falling around on our shoulder watching what we do and kind of whispering advice to us as we go along. It's someone of such magnificence that they know you by name that it ought to be life transformative. Back to John 17. Jesus says, don't cling to me, Jesus told her, for I've not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and tell them that I'm ascending to the Father and your Father to my God and to your God. You could fly through this and just think, nah, it's no big deal, just part of the story. I got to break it down. This is a really big deal. When Jesus says, don't cling to me, you got another big problem. I call it the touching question from Scripture. If I cross-reference Matthew 28, 
when they went to tell the disciples, the disciples came and held him by the feet and worshiped him. And Jesus said, don't be the, sorry, to, to the uh, um, women. This is the first woman that got to the tomb. She says, uh, Jesus says, go tell the brethren, the disciples, go to Galilee and there they'll see me. So the first group of women get to touch Jesus. Mary Magdalene, Jesus says, don't cling to me. Just like the angels, you look at it and you go, why do they get one treatment? Mary gets another treatment. The reason why is the nature of the touching. The first group of women are holding him by his feet. Mary comes in and clings to his feet. Mary's relationship is now totally different. It's the reason why Jesus with her uses her as a teaching point because she's holding on to him like one of our kids or grandkids would hold on to our legs, right? How does a two-year-old hang on to you if they don't want you to go to work or don't want you to go to the store? They grab onto your legs thinking their little bodies are going to keep you from walking away. That's what Mary's doing. The first group of women, the, the Greek term for hold is to touch and just like have my hand wrapped around it, to hold on to your ankle. The Greek word for Mary is the picture of the little kid, the little grandkid of clinging. I'm hanging on and laying on your feet with my chest and I'm not letting go so you're not leaving the room. Mary is a different picture because Mary's picture illustrates someone who thinks if he goes away, I lose him. If Jesus goes away, I don't have access to him anymore. And Jesus is saying, don't cling to me. Everything is now different. He's saying to her without using the words, I'm not going away. I'm coming back. I'm going to go to my father, my God, your father, your God. I'll talk about that in a minute, but it's a different relationship. Scripture gives us a cross-reference of how this is happening. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 16, Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. Even though we've known Christ according to the flesh, let now we know him in this way no longer. Mary knew him in the flesh. She knows the guy she eats with, talk to. If she can't grab onto his legs, he's not blessing her life. Jesus is saying, let go of me. It's a different situation because the resurrection changes our relationship with Jesus. Notice the end of the phrase. He doesn't say our father and our God. He says, my father, your father, my God, your God. What he's doing here is describing that we've got a new relationship We've got a new relationship with God the Father. I didn't ask for the background noise. It just popped in. Uh, the different application here is adoption. Our relationship with God the Father changed because believers in the Messiah were not adopted by Christ until there's a resurrection. As soon as there's a resurrection, God's relationship, or Jesus' relationship with the Father changed our relationship with the Father changed because we were adopted. Galatians 4 gives us the example that we would be adopted as sons and daughters. So our relationship to God the Father changed. And he highlights, go to my brothers. The first time in Scripture, Jesus describes the disciples as brothers. If the women were there, he would describe them as, and my sisters. Describing brothers and sisters becomes possible only with the resurrection because when we're adopted into the same family, we all become brothers and sisters. So our relationship with each other changed. It ends for today in verse 18. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and she told them what it said to her. I want to end before we do our application by talking about the significance of Christ's appearance to Mary. What would happen if Christ's first appearance was to Caiaphas, the high priest, or the godfather, Annas, you'd think, well, that was important. What if his first appearance is to the PhD student, Paul? 
What if it's to Peter? What if it's to Caesar in Rome? What does it say when Jesus' first appearance is to a devoted woman? History of demon possession, maybe a history of prostitution, maybe a history of drug use. We don't know, but she had a really bad life if she's drug if she's demon possessed. We don't know. But he takes somebody that culture would look at and say, you're not worthy. And I emphasized all the ways she was wrong. She wasn't educated in the Old Testament scripture. She didn't recall the Old Testament scripture until he says her name. She's clueless as to what's going on. And he makes her appearance to her. If Jesus appears first to Mary, rather than disciples, rather than the high priest, rather in Rome, rather than in, in Athens, He's saying, I appear to you. I will come to you and be your savior, no matter how educated you are, no matter how sinful your past is, no matter how embarrassing your past is, no matter how ugly your life has been, I will make an appearance, not to the greatest first, but to the least first, because that's who I love the most. It's powerful. I'll end in the last couple of minutes we've got with a couple of quick application points. Devotion through love is the single greatest testimony to the world of our relationship to Jesus Christ. They will never read your Bible, the lost, but they will read your life. If you are singularly devoted to serving Jesus Christ through spiritual gift, that's your Bible to the rest of the world. Devotion through love is the single greatest testimony to the world of our relationship to fellow believers. If your fellowship with fairly believers is more than those who look like you and who live in the same town and maybe even go to the same church and go to the same country club, that gives one signal. When you're willing to love and accept immigrants, people that may be illegal, people that don't look like you, different education, different socioeconomic, then you've got the ability to change, encourage, be transformative to brothers and sisters in Christ that sadly a bunch of believers today don't want to give the time of day. Final point, devotion through love is the single greatest testimony to the world of our relationship to our family. Sadly, because we've got relationships with broken, sinful people, we get the same reaction the world gets of fractured relationships all the time. Christians should be the example to the world of relationships that don't fracture when our sin nature flares. If we have true devotional love, 1 Corinthians 15, Romans 12, 10, if we've got that kind of devotional love, we ought to have relationships, friends and family alike, that are transformative to them and are illustrative to the rest of the world. So that's the reason why I focus this devotional love, because through the two guys, Joseph and Nicodemus, through Peter and John, through Mary Magdalene, we get these different lenses on devotion, the importance of which should be obvious to Christ, to God the Father, and to our fellow brothers and sisters. Next week, reactions to the resurrection. I'm going to introduce you to Thomas. We're going to look at all the disciples. If you like this, I think you're going to love next week. Come back next week. We'll finish John chapter 20. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the chance to come and study your word. We're just in awe that the transformative event of history is the resurrection. And we just thank you for something that we can barely understand, can barely wrap our brains around, but what we see is just overwhelming. We want to respond with devotional love. Devotional love to you, our Savior, devotional love to God the Father, devotional love to our brothers and sisters, above and beyond the devotion to our friends and family. And just say, give us that strength, not through our will, not through our might, but through an indwelling of the Holy Spirit that gives strength and power and wisdom through you to guide us in how to love well. Give us the ability this week to love well in your name 
Lead us and guide us until we're here next week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you all. See you next week. This has been a presentation of the Biblical Foundations Bible Study. Online at biblicalfoundationsbiblestudy.com. All rights reserved.